Heavenly Father, challenging truths lie before us today. Help us all to submit humbly to your word, be grateful for all that it teaches us, and be content even where it is silent. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, um, you may have been surprised to be reading from Ephesians and wondering if we're varying from Matthew. Not exactly. We're kind of taking a sidestep. A couple of weeks ago, I preached on Jesus' words that um, the gates of Hades would not overpower the church and explained what Hades meant and all that to the best of my ability. And it raised questions for uh, some folks who hadn't heard some of that teaching before. So I thought it'd be a timely time to step aside and look at that uh, from a different angle. I'm going to base this on a, a sermon that I preached six years ago in July. Uh, some of you weren't here, and, and some of you who were here, I guess, didn't commit it to memory, so, you know. So let's take a look at this again together. Um, there are, what happens after we die? First of all, we don't know anything about it by experience. We know not one thing, so we're entirely dependent on what Scripture says. And even among those who believe the Word of God, there is a range of views of what happens and what has happened through the ages to the souls of men when they die. They range from view, well, the views I hold to views that are fine but maybe not the best, to views that are still orthodox but really not the best, to views that are straight up heretical. And the thing is, we need to look at what the Word of God says. We need to look at it humbly, remembering that we don't know anything about it. We only know what God tells us. And um, can I tell you something about the Bible? Is that okay? You got a minute? Uh, about how the Bible works? The Bible is most concerned with what most concerns us. And that's why the Bible doesn't answer all the questions that we might ask. God is concerned with what matters to us. That's why there's not whole passages about what happens with people who've never heard the Bible. Because if you're reading the Bible, you see, <laughs> it's not for you. So everything is, that is in the Bible is what God wants us to know. That's what the sufficiency of Scripture means, that the Bible contains every word from God that we need. So if it's in the Bible, it's important. If it's not in the Bible, God says it's not that important. And God doesn't tell us everything about what happens after we die, um, for reasons I'll get into in the sermon. But we need to be uh, humble about it. We need to do our best to put the things together and uh, appreciate what God tells us and be content where God doesn't tell us. So many of you know the words of the Apostles' Creed, um, which includes that I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. Okay, what does that even mean? Scholars vary about what those words even mean, about what that confession even is saying there. It's important to note that the Apostles' Creed is not the Apostles' Creed. It was written at the earliest 200 AD, as late as maybe even the 8th century AD. It's not from the Apostles directly. Um, earlier versions, in fact, of the Apostles' Creed don't even have those words. He descended into hell. Those were added later than the Creed itself. It's not a church council, it's not scripture, it's not binding on our conscience, and yet these are words that Christians are saying today in churches, perfectly otherwise orthodox Christians are saying and have said. So what is that about, and where does that idea come from, and is it a biblical idea to say that Christ descended to hell? Basically, just a sneak peek of what we'll see, it's based on very questionable inferences from very difficult passages, including the passage we just read, Ephesians chapter 4. What does it mean when, when Paul says that he, descend, he who 
descended is he himself also who ascended far above the heavens. What does it mean when he says, uh, now this he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth or the lower parts of the earth? What is that? Regions lower than the earth or what? Well, we're going to look at all that together. And let's begin and, and do our best to just stick with, look the most closely at what Scripture directly says, beginning Roman numeral one, what happened on the cross. So let's look closely in this connection at what happened on the cross, focusing on the gospel narration of Jesus' words uh, before and on the cross. Beginning with what Jesus said before the cross. Turn here with me, please. John chapter 4. And we're going to look at verse 34. Gospel of John, chapter 4, verse 34. All this is going to kind of build together. So the best you can make notes about and put in your head what we're looking, it's all going to build together to what I hope is going to be a clearer picture for everybody. John 4, 34. Now Jesus said to them when they were saying, you know, what is he talking about food? Did anybody bring him anything to eat? Jesus says in verse 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work, very literally, that I might finish. Now just let your ears hear the verb there is teleo, teleo, that I might finish, that I might bring to completion the work. So Jesus is saying that there is a specific work with which the Father entrusted him. He came down to earth, frequently in John's gospel, he says he came down from heaven, he came down to earth that he might finish that work. All right, with that in mind, now let's look at what he said at the cross. Number two there, what he said at the cross. Turn to Luke chapter 23, if you can. And you know these words in verse 43. The thief says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. Now, those are fairly clear words, don't you think? When, where is, let's just ask it this way. Where is Jesus going? Just straight from the, all the answers to my questions are in the words I just read to you. Where is he going? When is he going there? Who will be there with him today? All right. Well, that's, you're all Bible scholars. That's very, very good. Then you're going to find that that's very helpful in the questions we're going to ask later. So that day... Jesus will be in paradise. The thief will be in paradise with him. Is there any hint here that Jesus is going to do a three-day stayover somewhere on the way to paradise? That before he gets to paradise, he's going to stop off in, in Hades or hell or any place besides paradise. I think the, key, the thief would be very disappointed to, to learn that because there's none of that in Jesus' words. He expects to go to paradise, and the thief, he promises, will be with him. So that's what he says on the cross to that repentant thief. Letter B, see what he says to all. Turn to John chapter 19 with me. And this is the words that Jesus simply utters in the hearing of all who were there and in our hearing. John 19.30, Jesus received the sour wine and said, it is finished. Now the word there is tetelestai, tetelestai. That sounds like the word I said a moment ago, teleo. Yes, they're related to each other. He said he came to teleothenai, that the work might be completed, teleo. And now he says, tetelestai, the work has been completed. So he says the Father gave him a job to finish. And what does he say here on the cross? Does he say, almost finished? 
Now, I'm not being silly. That's a very important question. Does he say, good start? Does he say, almost finished? Does he say, oh, so close? No, he says it is finished. On the cross, he's still on the cross. He's about to die. He says it is finished. So is there any... Now, this is a very important question. If he says on the cross it is finished, is there any redemptive work he has to do anywhere else than the cross? No, or else his his words don't make very good sense. In fact, they don't make sense. So now, hear what he says to the Father. You can just listen to this, but it's back in Luke 23. After this, then we see in Luke 23, 46, Jesus crying out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. Ekpnuo, he he outspirited. He he gave up his spirit. He breathed his last. Now, where did Jesus commend his spirit from the cross? It's, It's in this verse. To the Father. Again, any hint that he's saying, Father, I'll be there in just a second. First, I've got to go someplace else and do something, but I'll be right there. No, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then Luke uses a word related to the word spirit, a verb. He ekpnuod, he, he, he gave up his spirit. He yielded up his spirit. Where? To the Father. And he stop offs, not in what Jesus says. He gives his spirit to the Father. So these are the words of Jesus. Now let's look at the apostolic explanation of what's going on there from Colossians 2, verses 14 through 15. And I think the New King James Version rendering of this is uh, the most accurate. So I'll read to you from the New King James Version. You who are holding one in your hands may glow with pride because you've got the one I think has this, ver- this or whatever it means to you, has this, these verses the best. Colossians 2, 14 and 15, speaking of our Lord Jesus, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Oh, just wonderful, wonderful words. I mean, that'd be worth spending the rest of the service on these alone. These, these mean everything to a, to a Christian. These are wonderful words. But where did he nail that certificate of debt against us? To the cross. Okay. And then he disarmed principalities and powers. Where did he do that? Well, he did it on the cross. And he triumphed over them in it, in the cross. So this great battle was fought and won on the cross. So on the cross, Jesus Christ wiped out the bill against us. He nailed it to the cross. He disarmed evil spirits and made a display of them. What what is the whole uh, project of Satan and his devils? To persuade us that our will is best, our kingdom should come, our will be done. But what does Jesus come to do? The will of him who sent him. And what is his ultimate act of submission to the will of the Father? Adam and Eve in the garden surrounded with luxury and everything they could possibly need don't find it in themselves to obey God and eat a fruit that he he forbade and that they didn't need. Jesus, lacking all things, submits himself to the cross. This is the pinnacle of his submission 
And in doing this, he defeated Satan, all his foes. He ransomed for himself a people, freed us from our sins. That's where he did that work. He did it on the cross. And so, right uh, leading up to the cross in John 12, 31, you should note that down. In John 12, 31, Jesus says, Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. The great contest, the great battle that decides this war is fought and won at the cross. There Satan is judged. There his doom is assured. Revelation 12, 10, and 11 looks back to that. Revelation 12, 10, and 11, note that down. Now the salvation and power, the kingdom of our God, and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. He accuses them before God day and night, and they overcame him. The words say, how did they overcame him? What did they do to overcome him? Well, actually, guys, it turns out they didn't do one thing to overcome him. They overcame him because of the blood of the lamb. Now, just freshen my memory here. Where was the blood of the lamb spilt? At the cross. And these, these saints living in a future day, how did they overcome Satan? By the blood shed on the cross. That blood shed on the cross was the key to their victory over him. And because of the word of their witness, in other words, the word of their saying, I trust Jesus' sacrifice alone. I lean on Jesus alone. I look to him alone for salvation. And so doing their freed from the domain of darkness, from the power of sin, from any harassment by Satan or any control by Satan and set free unto God. So, anything left over? Is, is there something Jesus didn't finish that was important for us on the cross? No, it's all done. It's all finished. In fact, to, to, to coin a phrase, it is finished. It's all finished. It was all fought and won on the cross. All right, so then what happened after the cross? Roman numeral 2. Here it gets controversial. Or at least controverted. What happened after the cross? But it will be less dicey if you remember everything we just looked at. Everything we just looked at gives us a frame for understanding what's coming. So let's first consider the words of men. And in the words of men, there's an array, as I say it, ranging from the damnable and heretical to the, you know, in, in my opinion, correct, and also, in my opinion, uh, maybe not correct, but still biblically orthodox and not necessarily harmful. This is what we'll look at now, although in, in bold strokes. First, we're going to begin with heretical position. What heresy I defined for you in, in Sunday school, when I use the word, I try to use exclusively of teaching that if you believe this, you're going to hell. If you believe this, you're, you're not a Christian. This is not Christian teaching. Christians can teach error. In fact, all of us do. We're all erring human. We're all, I've said often that we're all enrolled for a, a class in Remedial Theology 101 in the first start part of the Millennial Kingdom. Every one of us, our name's on the rolls if we're going to be there at all. Um, but that said, um, there is heresy, and heresy is damnable. It's not just a mistake. It's just not an oops. It's not off a little bit. And people like Joyce Meyer... Kenneth Copeland, Kenneth Hagen, uh, T.D. Jakes, Joel Osteen, Frederick Casey Price, and many others teach this doctrine. You've all heard at least one of those names if you're over the age of 15, I would imagine. So what is the doctrine that they teach? Now, now hear me here. They teach that Christ's work of atonement was only begun on the cross. It was, in fact, a really good and important start but it was not all done on the cross. Kenneth Copeland flat out says, and I quote him, 
quote, Jesus' death on the cross was only the beginning of the complete work of redemption, close quote. So you see, according to their teaching, Jesus had to die another death, a spiritual death. He had to take on the nature of Satan and beat Satan in hell before becoming born again in hell, or becoming born again in hell at any rate. All of this obviously after the cross. And Kenneth Copeland doesn't just say this is his best reading of scripture in that winsome, chucklesome way that charismatics have. He says the Holy Spirit taught him this doctrine. So this is a thus says the Lord. It's not my best view of scripture. God himself told me this, according to Kenneth Copeland. Further, they teach that Jesus went to hell and paid there in hell. He was held captive in hell. He was tormented by demons in hell from Friday to Saturday to Sunday morning. All, the time, all that time, Jesus is in hell being tormented by demons. And then Sunday morning, God made Jesus be born again. Yes, you heard me right. Made Jesus be born again in hell. And then God demanded that Jesus be let go. Further, Kenneth Copeland teaches that Satan conquered Jesus on the cross. Satan conquered Jesus on the cross. And Jesus was just a pathetic little spirit in hell. Thus far, Kenneth Copeland. Now, this is heresy. This is damnable heresy. This is not, oop, that's just a little bit off. This is damnable heresy. And what's the truth of Scripture to this? Now, every one of you should be able to respond to every bit of that now, just by what you've been, well, certainly taught in the last 10 years, but even taught in this service so far. You already should be able to respond to it. Jesus said it was finished on the cross, and the apostles say, amen. It was finished on the cross. And every Christian should say, amen. It was finished on the cross, the entire work of redemption. And you see, that's why the Apostle Paul makes so much about the cross. He says he preaches what in 1 Corinthians 1? He preaches the word of the cross. The word of the cross is what he preaches. He glories only in Galatians 6. He says, God forbid that I should glory except in the what? The cross of Christ. Otherwise, if it was as Copeland teaches Jesus, Paul should be preaching the word of the pit, right? He should glory in the pit. He should glory in hell. He should preach hell. Because that's where Jesus did everything according to this false doctrine. But of course, that's not what Scripture says. It's blasphemous nonsense. Now let's look at another view that, that's shifting. This, I want to be clear, this is not a heretical view. It's, not a, it's a view that I, I once understood and probably provisionally held, but I don't think it's the best view of Scripture. But uh, this is held by perfectly sound people, perfectly good people. There's nothing heretical about it. I, I just don't happen to agree with it, and I'll explain why. But somebody teaches this, I'm not going to rise up, point my finger, and denounce him as a heretic per se, this non-heretical view is that indeed from the cross, Jesus went into Sheol or he went to Hades or perhaps even he went to hell, depending on who you're listening to, to proclaim his victory there or to preach the gospel there. There are, there are different um, versions of this, that he went there to proclaim his victory to everyone who was there or to proclaim his victory to the spirits of the fallen angels in Genesis 6 or to preach the gospel to those who were there, or even 
to preach the gospel to the people who lived in Noah's time and give them a second chance to repent. Now, that, I think, is harmful teaching. I would say that is harmful teaching. But we'll return to that in just a moment. So, all of this has in common that after the cross, Jesus goes to Hades or Sheol or hell and does something there before he goes to heaven. And maybe he clears it out and takes the souls of Old Testament saints and then he takes them with him to heaven. So, well, that's, that's a pretty bold uh, view and it's said with great confidence. Uh, on what scripture does it rest? It obviously wasn't in any of the scriptures we looked at, so they've got to find it in other scriptures. These are Bible believers. So where do they get it? Where do they go? One place they go is First Peter 3. So go there with me, please. Now, these verses are difficult verses, and I tell you that I am going through them quite quickly, or we'd be here quite a long time. So uh, just understand that. I'm not pretending to tell you everything that has been said or could be said, but we're just going to look at it. And my, my concern is first to see how people get that position out of it, and then to explain to you why I think it's not the best view of the verse. So 1 Peter 3, 17 through 20 in the context of talking with us about our suffering, he says, for it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing good rather than for doing wrong. Now that's important. Remember, this is what he's talking about, about our suffering. He's giving us encouragement about our suffering. For Christ also suffered. Okay, I see the connection there, but let's go on. Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that he might bring you to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Okay, I understand 17 and 18 just fine, and then it gets kind of choppy. <laughs> well, what is that about going to sp in the spirit to spirits in prison? What's that all about? Well, some people say what that's all about is Jesus in the spirit going to the, to the spirits in Sheol, like to the Old Testament saints who were dead, or maybe to those who, were, who died during uh, Noah's day. And he goes to those spirits, and he does one of several things, again, depending on who you hear. So maybe he goes to the fallen angels that Genesis 6 talks about, and he proclaims to them his victory on the cross. So he's not evangelizing anybody, he's just telling them that he overcame. Or maybe he goes to those who died during Noah's day, and either he proclaims his victory to them, or according to some, he evangelizes them and gives them a second chance. Or he goes and he cleans out all the Old Testament saints and takes them to heaven. That's another, another idea. Now, of those, again, I want to say, any idea that Jesus goes and offers anyone a second chance after death is harmful teaching. That is harmful. That's not okay. Hebrews 9 says, it is appointed to men to die. Okay, now I'm not really good at math, but I know one is the lowest number that isn't zero. Once, and then the judgment. So no, there's no second chance. That, that is, it's a cruel teaching besides being harmful. Because imagine anyone who says, who hears that and says, oh, well, good, you know, I really wasn't wanting to become a Christian now. I was a little worried. Turns out I'm going to have a second chance. How many fools, are, are, their, their game plan is that on their deathbed, they're going to repent and believe in Jesus. There are people who have that plan. That's their plan. What a foolish plan. But hearing this, they would say, oh, I don't even need to do it on my deathbed. 
I can do it afterwards. I'll repent and get saved afterwards. No, no, this is not what Scripture teaches. That's harmful. But what is Peter talking about? I don't think he, that is getting a whole lot out of that that isn't in that. Read verse 20 again. These, who are these people that he goes and makes proclamation to? They were once obedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. Well, was God being patient with the fallen angels during the days of Noah? No, it's not about them at all. Is he being patient with the rebellious sinners to whom Noah's preaching during that time? Yes, that's, that's who. Okay, but if you're saying Jesus went and evangelized them again after they died, why? They'd heard preaching for all that time. Why would they get a second chance? It's not like that they were cut short. They had a long time of Noah's ministry. And, and if he's going to give a second chance to them or proclaim victory to them, why just to them? Why single them out? Whatever Peter's saying, he's saying about those spirits and not about other spirits. So I don't think that's a very good view of that. Uh, I don't think that that is very true to what Peter's saying. So what is he talking about, though? You know, I think we get a lot of light if we turn back to 1 Peter chapter 1. Same letter, just a couple of chapters back. And read verses 10 and 11. Now, Peter's talking about the salvation that's come to us. And he says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, inquiring to know, listen, what time or what kind of time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he was predicting the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. So as Isaiah and Jeremiah, Ezekiel, as they all prophesied, by what power were they prophesying? Well, Peter says, it's by the Spirit of Christ. Well, was there somebody who was preaching during the days of those souls in Noah's day? Well, yes, there was. Second Peter 2.5 says, Noah is a preacher of righteousness. Noah was preaching. So what was the motivation for Noah preaching? Well, it was the Spirit of Christ. So what is Peter talking about when he says that during the time of, Noah's, uh, of Noah, uh, Christ um, made proclamation by the Spirit to spirits now in prison? This is Christ preaching through Noah to them, and they are now in prison. They listened, they did not repent, they died, they died under judgment. That's where they are now. But he preached to them through Noah. They heard preaching. And uh, as to suffering, uh, Peter's hearers are being encouraged to wait as they suffer because Noah preached righteousness and suffered mockery, but he was saved and those who ridiculed him were not and they're now in prison. So we should suffer with the assurance that as Christ has ascended to the right hand of the Father, having suffered, we will ascend to the, to, to the Father's presence and Christ's presence after we've suffered. That's what it's about. It's not about any, there's nothing in there about doing this after the cross or after he died. It's something that happened in Noah's day. Now let her be, there's another verse that's challenging and that's taken this way. There's no post-cross action in 1 Peter 3. What about 1 Peter 4, verse 6? Is there post-cross action on Christ's part here? Well, Paul, Peter writes, For to this the gospel has been preached, even to those who are now dead, so that though they were judged in the flesh as men, they live in the Spirit according to the will of God. 
Now, this is a challenging verse, and I'll do my best to make it simple. The people of, of the view that I don't accept uh, say, well, okay, so Christ preached the gospel to dead people. I mean, that's just exactly what Peter says they would say. Christ preached the gospel to, to dead people, and that's what this is about. He did this after the cross. He went and proclaimed his death to those who were dead after the cross. But, and, and again, some would say, and that's a second chance. And as I say, that's a very harmful doctrine, not just false, but harmful. But I just have a couple of questions. For one thing, where does this say Christ is preaching? It doesn't say Christ preached. That would be an odd way of saying it, in fact, if Christ was the preacher. It doesn't say Christ preached. But he's speak, talking about people who are now dead. In other words, people who had the gospel preached to them in their lives, and now they're dead. And they're judged in the flesh as men, but those who believed live in the Spirit according to the will of God. That's the context here. In fact, he's talking about our life of being mocked for our faith. Uh, You go back to verse 4. In all this they, that is unbelievers, they're surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, maligning you. But, he says, they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Oh, wait a minute. That's just exactly like what we just read, isn't it? For to this the gospel has been proclaimed even to those who are now dead, so that though they were judged in the flesh as men, they live in the Spirit according to the will of God. The end of all things is at hand, therefore be of sound thinking and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Well, obviously there's no second chance there. What he's saying is unbelievers think it's strange that we don't do what they do. I mean, we're going to die just like they do. So what's the advantage of denying ourselves all the fun that they're having to their eyes? And Peter's point is, well, Jesus is going to judge all of us, living and dead. Christians who die will live a glorious life in the presence of God. But those who hear the gospel die without faith will simply be judged by God and condemned. But there's nothing here about a post-Calvary visit by Christ to anyone. That has to be read into the passage. It isn't plain in the passage. So, letter B, then, let's remind ourselves about the words of Christ. No Scripture teaches that there is post-cross work. No Scripture teaches that. And let's remind ourselves about things that Jesus said. First of all, things he said before the cross. We recently studied this in Matthew, fairly recently. Matthew 12, 39, and 40. Now, we were here recently. You don't need to turn there if you don't want to. But Jesus says to the, to the leaders of that day, who demanding a sign. He says, an evil and adulterous generation eagerly seeks for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Somebody might say, okay, well, that seems to talk about him going to Hades or Shale. Well, does it really? So what is he saying? Okay, he is talking about three days and three nights. But what is in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights? His body. Where did he tell us that his spirit would go? To the Father. His spirit isn't three days and three nights in the, in the heart of the earth. His body is three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. But his spirit, he commits directly to God the Father. And so his spirit is with the Father. And then at the resurrection, spirit and body reunite. And he's bodily resurrected from the grave. Take another verse, Matthew 16, 21. 
Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up the third day. Well, what is raised up on the third day? His spirit? No, his spirit never died. His spirit went to be with the Father when his body died. Spirit doesn't die, but the body dies, and the body is entombed in the earth, and the body is raised on the third day. Remind yourself of that. And then remind yourself, number two, of what Jesus said on the cross. What did he say on the cross? Today you will be with me in paradise, he says. What did he say on the cross? It is finished. Nothing more to do now. What does he say on the cross? Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. So the work is completed on the cross, and he can say to the repentant thief, today you will be with me in paradise, and on dying he commits his spirit to the hands of the Father, and that's where he goes. So put, put all this together. On the cross, Christ's human spirit went to be with the Father, having completed the work of redemption. Went to be with the Father immediately. And Jesus' body would go down into the grave where it would lie for three days until Sunday morning. And on the third day, spirit and body would reunite and Jesus would be raised bodily from the grave. Well, now let's look to the words of the apostles in Hebrews. Turn to 1 Corinthians 15 with me. Should be familiar words, I hope, to all y'all. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul wants to review with them the essentials of the gospel. What are the essentials of the gospel? Verses 3 and 4, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins. Now let's, let's just trace the movements. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, there's number one, and that he was buried, there's number two, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and then come the appearances of the risen Christ. So the essentials are three. He died, he was buried, he was raised. Very simple sequence, no mention of a fourth work in between any of those steps. Just the three. A look at um, uh, Acts Acts chapter 1 with me, if you would please. Now, Luke's gospel ends with Jesus blessing the disciples and ascending to heaven. And so Luke begins his second work, Luke volume 2, saying, The first account, O Theophilus, I compose about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over 40 days and speaking about the things concerning the kingdom of God. And then verse 9, And after he'd said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And he went into heaven, and angels said, why are, you, why are you standing around staring into heaven? Jesus will come in just the same way as you watched him go into heaven. So now turn to chapter 3 in verses 19 through 21, then we'll put it all together. Chapter 3, verses 19 through 21. Peter, preaching to the Jews, says, Therefore repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus, the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. So 
Jesus, Luke narrates between his gospel and Acts, he dies, he rises, he speaks to his apostles for 40 days about the kingdom of God, and then he ascends into heaven, and he's going to stay there in heaven until he returns. Now, this is all fairly straightforward. He dies, his spirit goes to the Father, his spirit reunites with his body, and he's resurrected, teaches for 40 days, and bodily now ascends to the right hand of God the Father. There's no field trip for additional work. There's no suggestion he went somewhere else to do something extra at some point in Hades or hell. Uh, It's just the simple outline of events that we have in the Gospels and in Acts. Turn to one more. Go to Hebrews chapter 10. Verses 12 and 13. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 12 and 13. That's just such a great section, such a great section, such a great book. Amen, Chad? Amen. So verse 12, well, I'm going to start with verse 11, uh, because I can. And every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies are put as a footstool for his feet. That that just goes right in line with what we read in Acts. It's just like a shorter version of what he did next. Now notice here, his saving work has two movements, basically. One sacrifice for sins on the cross, and then up to his Father's right hand to stay until he returns. Now it really does violence to his whole point if there's a bunch of things he does in his saving work, other than accomplishing the whole thing on the cross, so that now for all time, the Holy Spirit simply needs to apply the benefits of what he did on the cross to all of God's elect. But he accomplished it all on the cross, and he did it all at one time, the writer says. He says, one sacrifice for sins for all times, and then... He ascends to the right hand of the Father. There's no room for an additional work in hell or Hades or or wherever. So now let's go to Ephesians chapter 4, which is a a baffling section. First read, and and many have gotten many different things out of it. I've translated it for you there on your outline. So you either turn there or just flip the outline over. I'll read it again. Now, he's quoting from uh, the Psalms here in this section. Now, he says, To each one of us was grace given in accord with the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, When he ascended into the heights, he captured captives. He gave gifts to men. Now, this he ascended, what is it? If not that he also descended into the lower parts, the earth. He who descended is himself also he who ascended, far above all the heavens, in order that he might fill all things. Well, now, what's that about? And some people say, well, he ascended to the lower parts. And many translations, the way I translate it, you can see in a number of translations, but many other translations say the lower parts of the earth. And uh, for good reason, the Greek has uh, what's called the genitive there, but that genitive can be, don't tense up as I say this, it can be appositional, which just means it's saying the same thing. Let me illustrate very simply. When I say I'm from the great state of Texas, great state 
of Texas. Am I saying that I'm coming from a great state that is located somewhere in Texas? A state that belongs to Texas? Uh, Sometimes living close to Houston, you kind of feel like that. uh, But no, I'm speaking of being from the great state that is Texas. The great state, Texas. Or one way of saying that is the great state of Texas. So when Paul says that he ascended to the lower parts of the earth, he's not saying parts lower than the earth. The lower parts are the earth. I'm I'm going to show you that. But the lower parts are the earth. That's what Jesus descended to. And his logic, and if you were to read Psalm 69, you see it there, that that God descends from Zion and and ascends back to Zion. And and Paul is saying, well, if if he descended, that means he also ascended. Or if he ascended, he also descended. If he comes down, he must have been up. If he goes up, he must have been down. And what is the down? Well, it's the earth. Here was down for Jesus. Jesus often says, as I mentioned earlier, especially in John's gospel, that he came from heaven. Where's heaven normally located spatially? Do we say down to heaven or up in heaven in the Bible? Heaven's up, seen as up in the Bible. So John 6.38 is one of those. I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So what this verse is saying is not, and this would have to be, as we've seen, this would have to be the only verse that says it, if it says it. It's not saying Jesus died and then descended to a still lower part after his death to lead captives captive or something. There's no room for that, see, in in the other verses we've seen. From the cross, he goes to the right hand of the Father. His body's buried, but he goes to the right hand of the Father. So, So what is this talking about? Well, he's saying he descended to earth because that's where he died. That's where he won these captives, on earth, on the cross. Well, is the cross low? Is earth low? For Jesus it is, yes. <laughs> because where did he came from? I came from California. He came from heaven. <laughs> very, very different. <laughs> very, very different. Uh, coming down from heaven is coming from the, the glorious presence of the Father where all is perfection and light and beauty and harmony to this planet, which is exactly like that except in every way. This planet, which is hatred and darkness and even the best people he associated with, the people he handpicked and hand-taught, that we're not headed, wool headed, slow to learn, frequently making mistakes, frequently needing to hear something over and over and over again. This is what he came down to. That's the lower parts. And, and this is what scripture locates. The lowest Jesus went was here. Look at Philippians chapter 2. This says the same thing in, in very memorable words, very poignant words. This traces the same procedure, the same um, route. So, urging us to humility, Paul says, verse 5, Have this way of thinking in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although existing in the form of God, that's up. That's Jesus before in the incarnation. Existing in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, by being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God also highly exalted him. 
No, let's just pause there. How, how could you diagram what we just read? He existed in the form of God. This is here in heaven. And then was it, where was his trajectory? It was down. He emptied himself. He took the form of a servant. He humbled himself to the point of death. And that death was on the cross. And that's as low as it gets. And then... God highly exalts him. So in that trajectory, what's the lowest point of that trajectory? It's it's earth, and specifically it's the cross. It's the cross specifically. So that's the lower parts, the earth. That's the down that Jesus went. He went to the cross. That is where he fully accomplished redemption, and thence his spirit returned to his Father in paradise, having won salvation for all the elect of God of all ages. All right, now we've looked at all this. Let's ask ourselves, what do we know with certainty? Well, we know with certainty that on the cross, Jesus finished the work the Father had given him to do. It was to the point where he was able to declare, it is finished. He finished the work the Father gave him to do. He fully atoned for all the sins of all his people from all over the world, Jew and Gentile, male and female, all nations, tongues, and peoples. He fully atoned for all their sins. And so he was able to promise to the repentant thief that he would be with him that day in paradise. And he committed his spirit to God the Father. Now these things we know with certainty. After the cross, we know Jesus' spirit went to be with his Father. I would say we know that confidently, and his body went to be in the tomb, where it lay until Sunday morning. And Sunday morning, spirit and body were united. Body was glorified and resurrected bodily from the grave. And then Jesus ministered for 40 days, teaching about the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, and then he ascended to the right hand of the Father, where he sits even now, waiting for that day when his enemies will be made Uh, the footstool of his feet. I would say we know these things with certainty because Scripture teaches them straight up. And we should use those as the frame for understanding verses that are less clear. So uh, what's that to us? What do we need to know with certainty? What's, What's the takeaway? Now here's the thing. I started this by pointing out to you that the Bible is most concerned with the issues that most concern us. So we can take it what the Bible is most clear about is most important to us and what it's least clear about is least important to us. And I found over the years, as probably many of you have as well, that the people who are the most interested in the theoretical aspects and speculative aspects of the Bible tend not to be as good on the practical relational aspects of the Bible. Tend not to be. And so we should ask ourselves, well, then what do I need to know from this with certainty? Well, I need to know with certainty that, that I will die. And I just say again, and my wife will, will uh, testify this, that every time in a medical drama when somebody asks, am I going to die, what do I say? I say, yep. <laughs> I'd make a terrible doctor at this point, but a good evangelist, I guess. Because I'd say, oh, yes, absolutely, you're going to die. But not of this. <laughs> if I can help it. Uh, maybe not for a good while, although I don't know. But I do know you're going to die, and that's what we need to know. We are going to die. Every time I preach at a funeral, it strikes me anew. The one thing we all know we're going to do is the one thing that most people don't prepare for and don't give thought about. They give thought about vacation or retirement and all manner of things that may or may not ever happen. 
But the one thing that they're sure will happen, they don't give a thought to and don't really prepare for and don't live in the light of this brief, brief life. And then what? And what will this life have been about? So we need to know with a certainty we're going to die. And we need to know with a certainty that after we die, we either are going to go to eternal glory in the presence of God or eternal damnation in the presence of God. God's presence is what makes hell, hell. So one or the other is our stop. And there will be no second chances and no third chances. We need to know this. We need to know that if we die without Jesus, we will never have any hope, ever. But if we die with Jesus, we will only have hope, ever. And joy and peace and a thrilling eternity. So if the details are confusing, let me give you this very practical bottom line. You say, I'm not sure I understood everything you just said. All right, understand this. Repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Understand that? Repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'll tell you what, he will make sure that you get where you need to get. (laughs) That's all you need to know. Repent and believe in Jesus, and he will make sure that you get where you need to go. And in the meantime, between now and then, focus on living for him all the time with everything you've got. That's the practical takeaway. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this, your word, and for what it does show us. And we pray that we will not only be content, but be grateful and excited about what it does show us and give ourselves to what it shows us. Give ourselves to pursuing you, walking by faith. This is such a brief life. And if we will have spent it thinking of nothing about the little pursuits and little toys and games and activities of this life and not glorifying you and serving you, what a sad life it will have been. Help us to look to Jesus and find the practical ways to make our lives count for Jesus in the way that he says to do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.